Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know, if you were a painting in a museum, what painting would you be? I would be a vast landscape with subtle notes of surrealism. In today's episode, I'm taking it back to Meatloaf to Helen Back, the autobiography with David Dalton. And in this episode, I really want to focus on his relationship with Jim Steinman. Jim wrote a lot of the songs that Meatloaf performed. Meatloaf, I feel, has a lot of emotion to him, and so he translates the world through emotion. They're two very different people, and yet they've come together to work on this artistic collaboration. Stuff like that is very important to me, and so I really focused on that in this book. So here I'll be splicing together a few excerpts about Jim, just to help you understand his nature a little more through the eyes of Meatloaf. We kept late hours because of Jim's habits. His mattress was in the closet because he slept all day. He never got up before four o'clock in the afternoon unless something really, really, really important was happening, which was almost never according to him. He slept in a closet because that was the darkest, quietest place to sleep during the day. Six, seven in the morning, that's when he goes to sleep, just like a vampire. Gets up at four or five when the sun starts going down and gets back to work. Recently, he told Entertainment Weekly that he's sleeping upside down in a tree in preparation for writing the Batman musical. And you can almost believe it. Which is just Jim's sense of humor, but this book was copywritten in 1999 just for context. Getting together with Jim was easier said than done. He's the most infuriating person ever to make an appointment with. Whatever schedule you make with him, he'll cancel it. And it takes him forever to go anywhere. He's racked by indecision. Jim can't even make up his mind about what he wants to eat. He'll order everything on the menu and every dessert twice rather than make a choice. He might take a bite out of each one and that's it. Finally, he shows up carrying his work in a couple of beat-up shopping bags from Bloomingdale's. I don't know how many leather bags I've bought him over the years, but the brown paper shopping bag seems to be his preferred briefcase. And soon as he pulls out a new song, you forgive him everything. Christmas of 1990, Jim came out to our house in Connecticut to start working on the new album. Him at the piano, me pacing up and down, the same way we did the original Bat Out of Hell. Our house being Meatloaf and his wife Leslie with their two daughters. He was late as usual, but when he played I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that for me, I melted. The way Jim works on an album is this. First, he recycles stuff that's either been lying around, or often songs he's used elsewhere in another form. He re-records his songs with different people over the years until he finds the right place for it. His albums consist of little operas taken from a number of different years. A lot of songs on Bat 2 were 10 years old or older. Some like Good Girls Go to Heaven had already been on Steinman's solo albums. Steinman regurgitates the older material, then he writes three or four new songs, and that makes the album new. When he has the content down, then the album is ready to be recorded. But it takes him forever. His tactic is delay. Delay delays. And negotiation delays. For all his eccentricities, Jim is not simply the mad artist. He's extremely canny about business and strategies. It was four o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't be held responsible for anything I say at that time, because I'm not a person who's awake at four o'clock in the morning. Jim is. He smokes pot, listens to the mixes in these specially designed rooms. He's really a unique individual. He has a warehouse filled with amplifiers, a type Sony hasn't made for 15 years. 
Jim loves the sound of these amps, so he scooped up as many as he could, along with a certain kind of small speaker. He's got them set up in these listening rooms. Jim gets a chair, his ashtray, sets up speakers on these plant stands, hangs drapes in special places around the room, and it's an adventure in listening. I listen in my car because a car is what I always judge everything by. If it's any good in a car, it's fine. When Jimmy listens to mixes, he dissects them. He enters the music. He picks this little guitar string and that little note. It makes you crazy. It took a long time to get Bat 2 done. Jim's songs may be miniature operas, but they're always too long for the radio. Practically every one of them has to be edited down from 9 or 11 minutes to something that the stations will play. He goes through incredible agony over these edits. As far as he is concerned, it'll kill the song. He calls them his autistic children. He thinks of his songs as his babies. And when people start chopping bits of them out, he goes through torture. He'll get on the phone and he'll plead their case in the most heart-wrenching way, trying to get me or Leslie to champion his cause, to go to management or the record company or whomever the powers may be and explain to them why the song can't be edited. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that started out 15 minutes long. Alan Kovac was telling him, you gotta cut nine minutes, Jim. This is never going to get played on the radio. Jim was inconsolable, crying in front of everybody. It's my baby. You're butchering my baby. He got in a huge fight with Alan over the edit of Anything for Love. They were still fighting about it when Anything for Love had been number one for five weeks. Alan warned Jim that any song longer than five minutes wouldn't get airtime on the radio. Jim is saying, well, it's 523. That's almost the same thing. Do you or do you not want your song played on the radio? Alan asks him. Jim digs in and says, oh, 23 seconds shouldn't make any difference. Alan agrees that it shouldn't, but it does. Jimmy's answer to any objection about length is, what about Bohemian Rhapsody? It's a lengthy, semi-classical piece that's a famous exception to the rule. The clincher in these disputes is always, if we don't make the cut, the record company will. And the last thing anybody wants to see is a record company edit. Jimmy went along with it, and then even after we cut it down, he sent his own versions to the radio stations. That was six years ago, and Jimmy still hasn't gotten over it. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Wasn't hard to sing, but it was a bit of a problem getting it right. You really have to keep that thread taut all the way up until the girl comes in, because it's not a standard duet. It's got to be real tense for the surprise to work. When you're dealing with a song that's seven minutes long, you can never lose focus. The girl's part doesn't come in for six minutes, and clearly it can be confusing, because almost everybody comes up to me and says, Come on, meat. What's that? I always think, oh, man. Jimmy saw it coming. He said to me at the time, do you think they're going to get what that is? I'm saying, Jimmy, how can they not get it? It's right there in the song. It's the first line before every chorus. Like, I'll never stop dreaming of you every night of my life. I'll do anything for her, but I won't do that. How can they miss it? They missed it, plain as day. Jimmy always said, you know what, nobody's gonna get it, and he was right. I was really thinking about this. Originally, when I heard the song, as far as I can remember, I thought it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, like, oh, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. 
well, you clearly wouldn't do anything for love if you won't do that. But then on second thought, if you pull up the lyrics, I'll never stop dreaming of you. He's talking about holding her close. And when things reach a level of spending the night together, he's pretty much bowing out of the situation. So it's like, I'll do anything for love, but I won't taint love by following through with a sexual deed. That's my interpretation of it. I'll post this interview on Facebook where they're making the music video for it and they're interviewing both Jim Steinman and Meatloaf and they ask them the same question. They never directly say it, but essentially Jim Steinman reinforces that the song is about chivalry. It's all about holding on to that love and keeping it pure. As far as I can tell, this was one of my favorite snapshot stories. When I first met Jim Steinman, he was sharing an apartment somewhere around 102nd Street with I don't know how many people. There were magazines and newspapers piled on every surface, junk stuffed in every nook and cranny. Jim's bed was in the kitchen. He had a rollaway cot. Its headboard was the refrigerator. I said, Jim, what if anybody wants anything in the refrigerator? Believe me, no one wants anything in the refrigerator. My curiosity finally got the better of me. So when he went into the other room for a moment, I scooted the bed back and opened the refrigerator. It looked like a psychedelic jungle. There were all these colored strands, green and yellow and blue, running all the way from the top to the bottom like extraterrestrial vines. Through the nest of frozen vines, you could just see a milk bottle. I went, whoa, and slammed the door, hoping no one would ever open it again. I've often wondered if all that alien life inside the refrigerator didn't have some effect on Jim Steinman's brain. He slept next to it. He dreamed next to it. Perhaps that refrigerator was the source of Jim's later eccentricities. Nah, he was always nuts. Eventually, Steinman moved to his apartment on 86th Street. He packed all of his stuff in boxes and I helped him move. I put all those boxes on the floor of the new apartment and there they stayed, unopened, for eight years. Not only weren't they unpacked, they hadn't moved from where I left them. Steinman hasn't changed. Even as a multi-millionaire, he still has boxes. Those same boxes. In 1983, he moved into a house in Putnam Valley, New York, and those very boxes were sitting in the living room, still packed the way I had packed them 13 years before. He had never opened them. One time in New York, Jim and I were walking down the street having this really bizarre conversation. It was about 10.30 at night. We were at Lincoln Center, 67th Street, walking up Columbus Avenue, when a guy says to me, give me your wallet, I've got a gun. And I turned to him and I said, come on, I ain't got time for this now, okay? We kept walking. The guy didn't move. We got down almost to the end of the block and I turned to Jim and I said, what did that guy just say? Did that guy just say, give me your wallet? And Jim answers, what guy? We turned around and looked back at this guy and he was just standing back there screaming at us because we'd ignored him. We didn't run, didn't cuss him out, didn't give him the wallet either. Our reaction wasn't in the script, which infuriated him. Nobody ever taught him how to improvise. It takes them going to the end of the block for him to process, wait a second, did some guy just ask for my wallet? And for Jim to say, what guy, it just made me laugh. It makes it seem like their conversations weren't topical, they were very in-depth. And I guess that's my allure to this. But there's this other story that Meatloaf shares that is a little spooky. The title head to the chapter is Phantom Blonde. Roger Powell had the first synthesizer I had ever seen. It looked like an old switchboard operator's board. Whatever sound you wanted, you had to patch in. One day at the house we had rented, I asked him if I could play it. He said, okay. 
I was sitting up on the balcony playing the synthesizer when all of a sudden I look up and see a teenage girl run across the whole length of the balcony, past a whole row of windows. I don't think anything about it. I keep playing the synthesizer. The rest of the band are all downstairs playing pool. When I go down there, I say, did you guys see that blonde? Where? She was running across the balcony, I said. How did she get up there? Well, how did you get the equipment up there? Isn't there another set of stairs? No, we brought it up through the house. Just go up there. There's a teenage girl hiding up there. We all went up. No one was there. Later that night, I was in my bedroom on the second floor with the big bed. Jim had the room next door. He wanted a little bed because that's just how he is. I'm lying in bed watching television with the door partly closed. All of a sudden, I hear the door opening. It makes this creaky sound because it's an old house. I go, Jimmy? No answer. It's winter and absolutely freezing, and I'm under a blanket, a quilt, a big bedspread, and a sheet. Suddenly, my covers fly off like someone is standing at the end of the bed and ripping them off me. At first, I couldn't speak. I am lying in this bed trying to scream. Finally, I get out, Jimmy! 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 He comes in. What happened? The covers just flew off my bed by themselves. Cut it out, he says. Jim, I swear. I'm scared to death, so I get Jim to sit in a rocking chair next to the bed. He doesn't sleep anyway. I was so scared I actually considered asking him to get into bed with me. I finally fall asleep, and he stays up watching TV. I wake up at 9 in the morning. He is still asleep in that chair. Finally, they tell me that the Bearsville accounting office is haunted by ghosts from three different eras. An old man, a young boy, about 9 or 10 years old, and a blonde teenage girl. So I did see a ghost, but it didn't look like a ghost the way you usually see them depicted. It wasn't transparent. It looked like a regular person running across the balcony. I believe people see ghosts all the time, but they don't know they're ghosts because they look just like real people. I was able to stay in that room for the rest of the time we were recording because Jimmy told me that he was taking the ghost into his room and I would be okay now. Jim had a child's toy that mooed when you turned it over. He told the ghost to get into it and then ran to his room. Every few minutes, I could hear this toy mooing from his room. It was Jim's way of telling me he had the ghost under control. I don't think Jim Steinman believed that there was a ghost there, but I want to talk about this encounter that Meatloaf had even before he met Jim. When he left home, he ran away. And what made him run away was he went to visit his mother and she had cancer and he hadn't seen her in a while. She almost looked emaciated. It scared him. And she had this huge plastic tent around her. He doesn't think she even knew that he was in there. This was in Dallas where he grew up, but he went to the airport and he just picked the very next plane that would take him out of there, which was in California. And so he pokes around in California until he gets an emergency message relay. There's a family matter you need to tend to, which he immediately knows that means his mom has died. And so when he goes to her funeral, it kind of puts him in this emotional, tumultuous state. Things come to a head with his father because his mom left him an inheritance, but it wasn't shared with his father. And in episode 105, I mentioned his father did actually try to kill him with a butcher knife, which really propelled him to get out of Dallas on top of everything else but he went through a lot of these blackout moments where he just can't remember what happened. Albeit a lot of that had to do with his numerous concussions just from sports and being clumsy. But he has this very interesting encounter one night on a pier during a very heightened emotional state. One night while I was playing at the cave, I walked out across the road to the end of this pier and decided to jump off into the ocean. I have no idea why. 
All of a sudden, there I was. I was looking down and a voice says, you don't want to do that. I stopped, turned around, and saw an old lady standing there. She still loves you, she told me. She still loves you and it's not your fault. I just looked at this lady. I didn't say a word. I watched her walk away right out of my line of vision. I stood there for a second. Then I said, whoa. It couldn't have been more than a minute before I turned around. And it's a long pier. But when I looked back, there was no one there. To this day, I think it was my mother. Now, I have never told that story to anyone, just to Leslie, my wife. I walked off the pier down to the beach. I couldn't figure it out. There had been no time for this woman to get off this pier because it was just a straight wooden pier. It would have taken you three or four minutes just to go down it. And it's wide open at the street, so even if she'd gotten to the end and turned this way or that way or gone straight, you'd see her. Did I see this woman? Did I not see this woman? And what the hell was I doing at the end of this pier? I was a strange sight. I weighed about 310 pounds, and I was wearing a big yellow Nehru shirt. I looked like a giant bumblebee sitting on a beach. I don't even like sand. The band came down asking, where have you been? And who were you talking to? Nobody. What happened to you? Did you drop acid or something? Come on, we gotta get back to the club. We're on next. I'm sorry, guys. I was, uh, hot. The club was really hot. I went back and did the show, then went home and tried not to think about it. Meatloaf suffered a lot of guilt for running away and pretty much not saying goodbye to his mother. He regrets that so heavily since he was actually very close with his mom. But I think it is very natural to want to run away from something you're afraid of. And I think this encounter, whatever it was, helped ease that guilt. It gave me goosebumps to read. I've never encountered anything like that, but I can only imagine what it would feel like. And he mentions in this that the band had approached him asking if he'd done some sort of acid, which Meatloaf does have a history of doing drugs, mostly cocaine, but I don't really know if at this time he had dabbled in that. The way he portrays the story, you could take it one of two ways, that he was drug-addled and maybe had a drug blackout, but again, even when he was sober, he still had these blackout moments. And it was typically in this really heightened emotion, and so his brain shuts down as a defense mechanism, and then suddenly he has no idea where he is or how he got there. He shares a few stories like that in the book, but I thought it was a good counterpart story to The Phantom Blonde. That's a wrap on Meatloaf for this episode. If you'd like to email us, you can do so at gwritersanon at gmail.com. If you're interested in that interview I mentioned, I'll post that on Facebook. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Holy crap, that was scary. Tulum, a little freaked out. But going back to the topic of ghosts, while I'm seeing these weird things in the corner of my vision, pretending not to...